You know, church, if you have your Bible with you today, you can grab it or use your phone app or whatever it is and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. And we are going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series today, looking at the subject of retaliation and revenge. So let's begin by reading our Bible text together, and then we will talk. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him Two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, in the English language, the uh, phrases, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, or going the extra mile, are quite common. And this is actually where it comes from, this biblical text here. You know, but few people, despite how well we know these phrases or even we use them, actually understand what Jesus meant by this teaching as he spoke to his disciples on the mountain there. You know, Jesus' teaching, if you think about it, is actually very, very shocking in a world like ours today that, is ad- that advocates for human rights, individual freedoms, and that nobody has the right to treat me badly. In other words, in our world, when bad things happen to us, what we generally teach people to do is we say to them, oh, don't get mad, get even. In fact, we would say the best kind of revenge you can have on a person is to be an immense success and absolutely humiliate them. You know, the subject of retaliation and revenge is an intensely personal subject, and it's actually very intuitively grasped. Most of us actually know what it's like to be slighted, to be wronged, and then feel this sense of burning rage against that other person for what they did. Like, how dare you do that to me? And just feel this desire that you want to absolutely like put them in their place or wreck their lives because of what they've done to you. What we want is we actually want somebody to pay. You know, revenge is actually so common in our society that you see it everywhere in like films, you see it in movie, uh, in uh, in in books. So, for example, you look at that uh, that film that won tons of Academy Awards back in its day, Ben-Hur. It follows the story of Judah Ben-Hur, who's betrayed by his uh, childhood friend Masala, sold out by him, and then he spends a lot of the rest of his time getting avenging that. You have others, for example, like Shakespeare. If you read Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, you realize that Hamlet is hell-bent, basically, on getting revenge for the death of his father, the king, at the hands of his evil uncle who poisoned him and basically killed him. You have stories like Moby Dick as well, another English classic, in which you have the obsessed Captain Ahab who chases after the white whale that has taken his leg, and when he finally has the opportunity to harpoon the whale, he yells and screams at the whale and says, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. And he says, with my last breath, for hate's sake, I spit at thee with my last breath. You know, The Princess Bride, a more recent phenomenon, tells the story, you know, of, uh, you know, Wesley and Buttercup and so on, but it has this little side story as well of a master swordsman who is bent on getting revenge on a six-fingered man who killed his father um, 
when he refused to pay the, uh, the price that his father had asked for the sword. And he lives his whole life waiting, just waiting for the day. He says that he will go up to, say, go up to the six-fingered man and say to him, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you know, uh, you know, you killed my father, prepare to die. He repeats this over and over and over again in the movie. In the end, of course, right, in the movie, like uh, Inigo Montoya actually wins, you know, in a duel with the bad guy. But, you know, if you think about it, and you think about the movie, why do we find that particularly satisfying? Like, would it make any difference in a movie like that if instead the bad guy got into like a horse accident, you know, and just died accidentally? Or, or what happens instead if, you know, the princess bride was 40 years longer and that the bad guy instead died of old age, surrounded by friends and family instead, just as the hero arrives to see him die? Or... What would, it, what would it be like if instead the bad guy actually won the duel at the end and the credits rolled and it was all over? Like how, would, how would you feel about watching a movie like that? See, I guarantee you this. If that was your movie and you were directing it, I'm almost confident, I'm confident that this would be a box office failure. I think very few people would come to actually watch your movie that ends like that. And the question is why? Why is that? See, if you think about it, why it is that we enjoy watching that kind of an ending in which it seems like justice is served is because of our innate sort of sense of justice, of wanting to see things done right. But not only that, actually, because of an innate sense, I think, in our sin-corrupted souls of wanting to savor the sweetness of human revenge. See, what we're interested in is not just bad guys who die, but we want the bad guys actually to die slowly, We want them to die painfully. We want them to die full well knowing that they understand in terror what is coming for them and that they are about to pay for every wrong that they've inflicted on anyone else. See, what we actually want goes way beyond actually justice. What we want is revenge, the absolute humiliation of those who actually wrong us. And it's not just in movies and in big things and in murder. You you, you might not have actually wanted to murder anyone in your life, but the same seeds of revenge are actually there in your own heart as well, and they play themselves out in everyday life circumstances. You know, there's a joke that's told, for example, about an old lady who basically goes into a bank, and she goes up to the teller there and wants to make a withdrawal of like 100 bucks from her, from her account. But as she asks her questions and works with the teller, the teller, you know, gets really annoyed by her slowness and answering her questions and basically says to her, okay, look, go, go read about the stuff online or whatever. And if you want to make a withdrawal, I'm sorry, we can't help you here. And the, and the old lady looks at her and says, why? She says, well, the, the daily limit for the ATM withdrawal, uh, the daily limit uh, is, I mean, the, uh, if for any transaction under $5,000, basically you go and use the ATM, don't, don't stand in line here. And besides, there's a whole queue here, so just, just go and use the ATM. And then the old lady is quiet, and then she looks back at the teller and says to her, well then, please help me withdraw everything from my account. And the teller is surprised by this and checks her bank account and realizes the lady's a multimillionaire and she has $10 million in her bank account. And she looks at her and says, well, I, I'm so sorry, ma'am. Like, I, I, um, I, the bank does not have this kind of cash on us right now. Could, could you come back tomorrow instead? And the old lady says, well, how much can I withdraw then instead? She says, about $300,000. And she says, well, do that then instead. And so the teller has to go off now and get special permission from the manager, opens up the safe, gets wads of $100 bills and stacks them all up together and brings them back to the counter and says to the lady, here you go, here's your $300,000. 
And she says, ma'am, uh, will there be anything else for the day? And the old woman looks at the stack and she smiles with a smug smile on her face, plucks off one $100 bill, and then says, yes, I would like to make a deposit now of $299,900. You know, it's, 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 the, the story is humorous, right? Uh, be, because you realize that what, what it almost says, it's, it's like, don't mess, with these, don't, don't, don't mess with these people, right? And give them a hard time. Because if you do that, these, you know, somebody who's out there to, to, that's smarter than you and knows what they're doing will get you back in the end of the day. You know what I mean? I mean, the teller thought that she could, you know, just pass off this old lady, but this old lady, in her cleverness, basically made life difficult for her and figured out a way to get the hundred bucks without ever leaving the line. Now, if you ask me about that story, why is it that we feel a sense of, uh, you know, pleasure or we smirk at the story of what was done? And the reason why is because the teller was mean. Now, if the teller had been nice, I don't think we would feel this way, but we feel a sense of like, well, she was getting her just desserts. You know, she should not have tried to do that to the old lady as well, so she got you. But at the same time, you think about that, really what the old lady did was excessive. I mean, perhaps she could have written a formal complaint instead. You know, she didn't have to do that. She could have spoken afterwards to her very politely and says like, you know, I, you know, there's a few things that could have been done. There was no need to necessarily make her go spend 20 minutes or half an hour going to her banker, you know, and figure out how to get money out of the safe and just to get the $100. I mean, it wasted both of their times. But why? Why would anyone do such a thing? Why do people do this and then post videos of themselves on YouTube, paying parking tickets in pennies and so on? The answer is because we want to feel a sense of satisfaction that if anybody does something to us, we want to show them we are no walk. We are not a walk in the park. You can't do this to us. You hit me like this, I will hit you back ten times harder. So don't you dare mess with me. See, we think we have rights, and it's up to us to defend those rights from people who would dare try to take advantage of us. And this story is sweet, right? Because it's laced with the sweetness of revenge. Revenge, unfortunately taste sweet, I think, initially. And that's why so many people are interested in it. You know, revenge actually comes very naturally to us. But the question, of course, is does it actually help us? You know, there was a study published by, I think, Kevin Carl Smith a number of years ago in a, in a journal called The Paradoxical Consequences of Revenge. And what he found was fascinating in his research was that uh, most people, through experimentation, he realized that though they actually want revenge, by the time they're done actually getting their revenge, they actually don't feel as good as they think that they would have felt. In fact, many people have a, have an, they overrate how good they'll feel after taking revenge, but when they actually get it, they realize they feel terrible afterwards. It doesn't satisfy them in the way that they thought. You know, the question for us is, why is this so? Why does revenge actually leave you not feeling happier than you were before? See, why does revenge do this to us, contrary to what Hollywood movies would make us think? And if revenge actually does not satisfy you, is there another way to live so that you can actually restore your happiness and your joy in your life and live in a way which is back to flourishing and not living in a land of hatred? Now, I think in order to answer these questions, I think Jesus actually, his teaching here has something to say about that and is highly instructive for us today. So let's begin by walking through our text today, and we'll start at verse 38, okay? Do you follow along with me? Verse 38. The scripture says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Now, this verse that Jesus starts with is an exact quotation from the Old Testament, and it appears in like three different places. The first place is here, Exodus chapter 22, uh, verses, uh, 21, verses 22 to 26, right? And the text from Exodus reads like this. It says, when men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. The beginning of our text here starts with injury that's done to an unborn baby. Now, if this is just literally to be carried out, it's quite easy to see in the cases in which an aggressor maybe causes the death of the child that, you know, he also would have to pay with his own life by being executed before the judge and the jury. But it's kind of hard to see, if you were to take this text literally, about how tooth for a tooth would apply to a man striking an unborn baby who has no teeth anyways when they're born, to actually knock their tooth out and then to have his tooth knocked out. I, I don't think, the, or, or to burn a baby, for example, that's tucked away in his mother's tummy. So I don't think that the point of this is for the father to wait until the teeth come out and say, like, I think that you, by striking my child in the womb two years later, one of his teeth is not coming in and you're probably responsible. Let's get a pair of pliers and rip out one of your teeth as well. I mean, I think the point of this is to phrase and to explain how the system of the law demands actually appropriate punishment or compensation for acts of evil and wrong that are done. So in other words, what needs to happen is to make sure that justice is properly served. Now, I said system of law because verse 22 says in here that it's the judge's and not like the husband or an angry relative or an angry mother or somebody who goes and seeks the justice here. And the the reason why this is the case, why they don't get to determine the penalty, is because in a sin-corrupted world, the natural tendency of the human heart is not to actually give fair justice, but to actually go above and beyond, over the top, and to extract way more punishment from a person out of a sense of outrage that you have for doing something to you. So oftentimes when we're angry and we have these crimes of passion, you will mete out not justice, but you will deliver us to somebody way, way more than actually what they deserve for their crimes. In other words, why it's not good for us to do this is generally speaking, when we're emotional, we're angry, what we want is revenge and not actually justice. Now, you know, there's a clinical psychologist by the name of uh, Leon Seltzer who I think has done an excellent job in distinguishing between revenge and between justice. Five differences that he notes are this, okay? Number one, revenge is predominantly emotional, whereas justice is primarily rational. Two, revenge is by nature personal. Justice is impersonal, impartial, and both a social and legal phenomenon. Number three, he says, revenge is an act of vindictiveness, Whereas justice of vindication, revenge is about cycles and justice is about closure. Revenge is about retaliation, but justice is about restoring balance. See, we all understand this, right? The crazy cycle that happens when you try to take revenge on someone. 
Like it's, it's like the new, it's like the creed and the teachings of the New York mobsters, right? They teach people about what to do with them when they, when they insult them and stuff, right? They'll say like, hey, Joey, you know, you know what you do with these guys? What you got to do is he looks at you funny, then you deck him one in the face. If he pulls a knife on you, then, then you got to pull a gun on him. And Joey, if he sends your, one of your boys to the hospital, then you need to send his boy to the morgue. You know, it's this escalation, this gangster talk of saying, like, whatever you do to me, I will do ten times worse to you. So don't you dare come after me. You come after me and kill one of my boys, I will kill your entire family. That's how revenge works. That's how human beings function. You actually see this in the book of Genesis right away at the beginning, where you have this guy named Lamech not long after the fall, who says basically, hear me, my wives, if I kill the young man for striking me, if, any, you know, if anybody you know, goes after me, guess what? I'm going to get him way worse. See, you might never have killed anyone in your life, nor you might not even have the desire to do so. But if you're honest with yourself, in the way that people have mistreated you, do you not see these same seeds of revenge in your heart? That you are fully capable of doing that to somebody as long as they do something horrible to you. See, think of the times that you yourself have lost your cool. You had a broken relationship or something, and you wanted nothing more to do when you had a broken heart than to pay that other person back and make them feel what kind of broken heart that you had. And you want their heart to be shattered into pieces as well. Or you're driving in traffic, right? Somebody cuts you off, right? Or they, they make some obscene gesture towards you, and your blood boils over, and you chase them down, and you want nothing more than to cut in front of them and slam on your brakes as well, just to give them a little taste of their own medicine, right? You, you all understand what that's like. Like, we feel these things. And the reason why is because we have sin that actually lives inside of our heart, and it clouds our vision. And sin actually... Is, a, is, is like the red visor, I think almost that Darth Vader wears, that causes him to shade and see everything in the world in this color of anger and sort of hatred. We think because of sin that the justice that we feel that we want, you know, we think that's actually just when really what it is is revenge. You know, Jeremiah, speaking about human sin, says this, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, it's engraved on the tablet of the human heart. See, do you realize that in your heart, you have programming there? You have software that actually runs. And in your heart, to use modern language, is an app that's basically called Vengeance. And that if people know how to unlock your heart and push the right buttons, you know, and they know your passcode to that, oh, they can, they can activate that app. They can get you to run it and you will exercise it full force, right? Most of you know this, right? Close friends, family, they always say, oh, my family knows how to push my buttons and they make me so mad. I'm like, yeah, that's right. They know how to run that program that you have inside of you. And you're oftentimes the worst, right? Because you're uninhibited. You know, because of sin in our hearts, we, just like the Pharisees, go and misinterpret the law of God. We read an eye for an eye, and because of our sin, we think it means, well, I'm, I'm justified in giving tit for tat. You take out my eye, I will punch out yours as well. That's what the Bible says, does it not? You know, Donald Trump, who's the current American president, you know, was asked once on a radio interview with uh, Bob Lonsbury in 2016 if he had a favorite Bible verse that he felt had informed his character and the way that he had lived. And it's really interesting because the president actually responded by saying this. He said, well, I, I think many. I mean, when we, when we get into the Bible, I think many, so many. And, and some people, look, an, an eye for an eye, 
You can almost say that. That's, that's not a particularly nice thing. But if you look at what's happening to our country, I mean, when you see what's going on with our country, how people are taking advantage of us, how they scoff at us, they laugh at us, they laugh at our face, they're taking our jobs, we're taking, they're taking our money, they're taking our health, we have to be firm. We have to be very strong. We can learn a lot from the Bible. That I can tell you. Do you hear what he's, he's saying here? He's saying that, well... The Bible clearly says an eye for an eye. And look what's happening in our country. They've treated America this way. So according to the Bible, we need to treat them the same way. See, this is a complete misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching that's prevalent in our culture. See, an eye for an eye actually acknowledges that proper restitution needs to be made for harm. But it's also a guard against an excessive amount of punishment. See, this law is an ancient law. It's found in the Code of Hammurabi as well, and we call it lex talionis, right? Basically, the law of retaliation. It's not like, oh boy, like you punched out my tooth. Guess what? You stand over there. Hold still right now. I'm going to deck you and take out your tooth, the exact same one. That's not the way it works. Lex talionis' purpose, given by God, was to take compensation and retaliation out of the realm of personal injury and revenge and to move it out into the proper realm of the social justice law courts instead so that justice could be given that was fair, equitable, in the sight of all people, not done behind closed doors with rage. See, the Pharisees were reading the Mosaic law all wrong because of their hard hearts. Like you see this in the way they talk about divorce. When Jesus is talking about divorce, they say, well, Moses said that we could have a divorce. So I think God approves of it. And Jesus basically says back to them, Moses gave you that law because your hearts were hard. That's not how God intended it from the beginning. He said that he made the two to become one. So why are you ripping apart what God put together? You guys don't understand that some of these laws are not given because you're great, but they're given because to control your absolutely wretched behavior wasn't God's original design. See, the whole point of lex talionis is this. It's appropriate compensation and to ensure that God-honoring justice takes place in a society. It's not a sanction on personal revenge. In fact, we know that it literally doesn't mean always a tooth for a literal tooth because if you read afterwards in verse 26, it says that when a slave has his tooth knocked out, he doesn't get an opportunity to go and knock out his master's tooth, but instead the Slave is to be given financial compensation in the form of actually his own freedom, and he's to be let go. So for the tooth that he has lost, and proper restitution is made in that he has granted his freedom. So what's the conclusion of all this, just looking at this text? The conclusion is this. God gave his laws to actually uphold justice, not to sanction our personal desires for revenge. Okay? All right, so... From this verse, if we're not supposed to get even in our world, what exactly are we supposed to do? And this is what Jesus is going to flesh out as he, looks at the, as he speaks in these next few verses. Look with me at verse 39. Okay. Verse 39 says this, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, okay, question at this point. Does this teach that Christians are to be doormats who are walked on by everybody else. Does this mean if somebody shows up to your workplace or to your home and says, I'm here to kill everybody, are you supposed to say to him, 
well, well, that's kind of evil, but uh, my Bible says don't resist the one who is evil. Do you want my gun too? Like, that's not what you're supposed to say. I mean, think, think the Old Testament is very clear that we are to stand for justice. We are to fight for the rights of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. God looks at these sort of things. So I don't think that's what it's saying. I think there's a clue, actually, in the text to help us understand in what context this is given. If you look at the text, notice that it says, slaps you on the right cheek. Now, if you've ever slapped anyone before, well, I don't want to know if you've actually slapped anyone before. I'm just saying, like, if, you're, if you were going to try to slap someone and you're a right-handed person, it's actually very hard to slap somebody on the right cheek if, unless you go around like, like that, right? You know, instead of like, you know, the left cheek, yeah, very easily, or you can just slap them this way. But if you're slapping them on the right cheek, that's actually hard to do. The only way you can slap them on the right cheek with your right hand is to use a backhanded slap like this and to hit them on the face. Now, a backhanded slap that's given to you, if somebody does that to you, they're really not trying to kill you. What they're trying to do is absolutely humiliate you. At least if somebody punched you in the face, they would say, they would say you're probably my equal and you deserve a fair chance at a fist fight. A back slap to the face says, you're not even worthy of my fist. I'm just going to insult you by slapping you on the cheek with one of the weakest parts of my body. It's insulting. It's an attempt to humiliate. I think that's what he's getting at here. In fact, if you look at the Jewish Mishnah, which contains the writings and the teachings around that time, you can read in Mishnah Bava Kama, uh, chapter 8, verse 6, and it talks actually about this backhanded slap. It says this, If a man boxes the ear of his fellow, he must pay him a sila. If he slaps him, he must pay him 200 zoos. If with the back of his hand, he must pay him 400 zoos. You see what's interesting about this teaching from the rabbis? is that the backhanded slap commanded a compensation that was twice as much as a regular slap. So I think it carried the idea here really that this was really, really insulting. And you realize that what Jesus is saying here is that when people are humiliating you and doing their best to absolutely insult you, this is what you have to do. I don't want you to repay evil with evil as one of my followers. Instead, what I want you to do is to turn the other cheek and to allow them to be able to humiliate you again. You know, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to do for doing evil. See, I don't think this means that you have to go out looking for trouble or looking for reasons to make people humiliate you. But it means there are circumstances in your life that happen when people, all they want to do is just humiliate you and to treat you poorly. Jesus is saying, don't respond in kind. It is far better to have another insult delivered your way than to repay evil for evil and sin in the eyes of God. Don't stoop to their level. Don't do what they do. You know, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross, did he not? When Jesus went to the cross, Isaiah says of him that he was like a sheep led to the slaughter and he did not even open his own mouth. He did not revile those who reviled him. He refused to repay them in the same way that they treated him. Jesus actually returned their insults with prayer instead. See, resist, not resisting evildoers in this context does not mean allowing murderers to run rampant, you know, in our country. You know, the Bible is very clear that in Romans 13 that the government actually bears the sword has the ability to use force to actually stop evil people from doing bad things, and that's a good thing. But 
In this context here, evildoers is about people who are maybe average people just like you and me. They might be your colleague at work. They might be a family member. They might even be a friend. But what they want to do is insult you and humiliate you with the evil that lies in their heart. And the question for us is, how are we to respond? And I think what Jesus is saying here, if you want to outline number one, I think what Jesus is saying here is, when you are insulted, be kind and not vengeful. That's what it means to be one of my people. Now, in verse 40, Jesus actually continues on building on what it means, this radical nature of being a disciple. You think that was intense. He said, I've got more actually for you of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Verse 40 says this, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, now here Jesus is up in the ante again, right? Question for us, when we, when, we, when we hear this text, like, what are we supposed to make of this? Like, does this mean here that anytime somebody comes after you for money, that you should literally hand them your wallet and then say to them, well, you don't know my pin to my bank account. Let me also take out my bank account. Can I withdraw you as some extra cash? You know what I mean? As well, does this mean that when anybody comes after you for money, you simply just give them that and everything else that you have? I don't think that's actually what it's talking about. You know, the piece of clothing that's talked about here, or tunic, or the Greek chiton, was a type of clothing, you know, that was worn underneath your outer piece of clothing. Now, it was valuable, but it was not as valuable as the mation, which was the outward cloak, you know, the last thing that you wore over yourself. The cloak was way more valuable. So if you look, for example, at Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, it shows that the cloak that you wore on the outside uh, could actually be given as collateral or pay, uh, collateral to be held if you were borrowing money from somebody. So Exodus 22, 25 says, if you lend money to any of my people who is poor, you shouldn't be like a money lender and you shouldn't exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering. And it is the cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Okay, so the scenario I think that Jesus is painting here says, look, you've got a legitimate debt with someone. And obviously because of your inability to pay it, whatever, they're pretty upset, and they have to settle this by actually taking you to court to demand their compensation. They're frustrated, okay, with you. Jesus is saying here, when that happens to you and you really are responsible, Go and actually don't just pay them the minimum. Don't just give them the tuk, uh, the tunic to satisfy the minimum amount that you owe them. But I want you to go above and beyond to show that you're really repentant and you understand and you want to do them good. Give them even your cloak, that very valuable piece of clothing, the one that you need to wrap yourself in at night. Go out of your way to make them understand that you are very sorry for what you have done and you want to be generous in your compensation to them for the wrongs you have committed against them. You know, we actually see this actually in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, which says, after Zacchaeus believes in Jesus, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it to him fourfold. In other words, I think Zacchaeus would really have taken a major hit to his wallet by compensating people, not just what he stole from them, but four times as much. This showed what a change of heart that he had towards those people that he had defrauded. See, if you're in business, you know, or you get deals where either, you know, people fraud you or maybe you actually don't do the best job of uh, satisfying your customers or you've shortchanged someone, you know what you need to do? 
you actually need to make it right. In the way that you compensate with your customers, the way that you deal with them, the way that you practice kindness towards them, you go out of your way to make sure that they come back and say, absolutely, I had a problem, but so-and-so solved it for me, and they went above and beyond with my problem and gave me service that I could never have expected, nor did I even deserve. I am so satisfied with the way that I have been treated. So-and-so is an individual who always makes things right. That's what you should be known for as a Christian. You should have an excellent reputation in the way that you work, not just the minimum standard of things, but that you go above and beyond. See, as a Christian, that actually might cost you something. But you know what our bottom line is, brothers and sisters? It's not dollars and cents. Our bottom line is actually integrity and generosity. And though you might be poorer as a result of that, you will be far richer with treasures in heaven as a result of living for the Lord and following His commands. So number two, if you're outlining this from this verse, when you've been wronged, number two, be generous in compensating people, not stingy. Now, Jesus still isn't done here as he lays down another one. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, If anyone forces you to go with one mile, go with him two miles. Now, we're all familiar with the expression, go the extra mile, but do you know where it comes from? It comes from this ancient, uh, ancient law that the Romans had. You see, Roman soldiers were allowed to conscript any civilian that they wanted and tell them, you need to serve me and carry my stuff for me but there was a limit on it that they could carry it for a maximum of only 1,000 Roman paces, which was one Roman mile. So in other words, the law allowed soldiers to make civilians do stuff for them. And you actually see this in Matthew 27, when Jesus is going to the cross, the Roman soldiers don't want to help him, so they actually grab Simon of Cyrene and make him carry the cross of Jesus Christ. No, no, no interest in whether you had plans for the day or anything else you were doing. You had to obey under fear of punishment. Now, Just think about how revolting this was for the Jewish people. The Romans weren't your friends. They were your conquering enemies. In fact, they hated them. And the last thing that any Jew had on his mind was to, how can I wake up today and go help one of my Roman conquerors who have oppressed my people and killed them with their swords? That's not what you're thinking at all as a Jew. In fact, by carrying their packs and their weapons, you were carrying the very instruments that they used to torture and destroy your own people. How revolting was the idea of having to help a Roman soldier carry his stuff. Imagine today we were living in a police state, okay, in which the cops could ask you for anything, and you're driving along one day, and the police pull up behind you, and they say, excuse me, uh, we need you to do something for us. We've got way too much equipment here from our crime scene or whatever, and we need you to take it back to the police station. And uh, by the way, this is not a suggestion. We're not asking. We're ordering. What would you do if we lived in such a country where it came to that? Like, How would you feel? Do you know what Jesus would want you to do in that case? He would want you to say, yes, sir, officer, absolutely. I will do it. In fact, I can see actually that you have so much stuff here at the scene that it will probably take two trips to do it. I will go and bring the first load back and then I will drive back here and I will take the second load and bring it back to the police station for you. The question you think is, why should you do this? Don't you have places to go? Don't you have busy lives? Don't you have things to do? How, how dare an officer for his own convenience stop you and exercise his power to make you do something you don't even want to do with no consideration to you? Shouldn't you get angry? Jesus, no. Even if they're your enemies, guess what? God wants you to treat them well as well. 
In fact, we're going to see this afterwards in the next sermon when we look at love your enemies. And then you'll be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The whole, Jesus' whole point in the proper treatment and the good treatment of your enemies is this. You want to be generous towards those who insult you and use you because God is generous to his enemies as well. The world would say, put a smile on your face while you rage on the inside. And Jesus flips this on his head and says, no, no, I want you to smile on the outside and on the inside. As my people, I want you from the heart to bless those who persecute you and serve them excellently. Don't just go the one mile with them, but go two miles with them. Show them that you care. Show them kindness. You know, I love the story that Michael Green tells in his book on the Gospel of Matthew about a black Christian leader in South Africa and how he responded to humiliating treatment by whites. He said, when I have been unjustly forced into some menial action, I complete it. And then I turn and I ask my boss if there is anything else that he would like me to do to help him. This totally takes the wind out of his sails. He can hardly believe that any wronged party would respond like that. You see how different that is? You talk about hatred being like a freight train that's going to bowl everyone over in your path, you realize you can't actually stop a freight train of hatred by summoning up your own freight train of hatred and sending it back in the other direction. You know what that does? All you get at the end of the day with two freight trains going at each other is you have a huge collision. And that collision will not only destroy both of you who are driving it, but it will crush everybody else around you in the process. It's absolute destruction. So you know what the only way to stop a runaway freight train of hatred is? It's actually with a net made out of godly kindness, humility, and love. And that's what Jesus is saying to do. I want you to catch the freight trains of this world of hatred with my teaching on kindness and love. Stop hatred dead in its tracks. And in fact, convert those freight trains, turn them around, and turn them also into agents of love and kindness as well. See, this is exactly what God did for us. Jesus is asking us to do this because of what he has already done for us. You know, the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He repaid us with kindness instead of hatred when he was there on the cross. How could we not do the same thing, to go the extra mile to save somebody else's souls, given what's been done for us? See, brothers and sisters, do you, do you long to get revenge when people insult you? Do you, like, repay them with the evil that they do to you because you feel, I've got rights, I've got to stand up for myself. Justice is fair, but revenge is not. How does God want us to treat them? Put this in your outline, number three. When you're compelled to serve your enemies, serve them excellently, not grudgingly. Okay? That's the heart of God. And we're saved because God treated us this way. Last one, verse 42. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, this whole thing is about God's people being generous to those around us who are in need. Not only are we to treat our enemies bad, or treat our enemies well instead of badly, we are to look at those who have genuine needs in their lives and say, I'm here to be able to help you and to be generous to you as well. Now, I don't think this means that you as a Christian need to go out and empty your bank account to, to, to follow this. You know, Augustine uh, commenting rightly on this passage says, the passage says, give to everyone that asks, not give everything to him that asks. There's a difference there, okay? 
And I think also assumed in this, right, is the idea of supporting legitimate needs, right? Because if you look at the Bible in, first, in Thessalonians, we have instructions that are given that if a person will not work, he should not eat, right? So what we don't want to do is just give out handouts that support a lifestyle of sin. That's not what Jesus is encouraging. But Jesus is just speaking rather quickly here and saying, look, if there's real needs, you know what should characterize you as a person who encounters real needs? You should have a heart and a disposition of generosity, just being willing to give and to support those who have genuine needs. So in other words, his point is, number four, when you are asked for help, give with a willing heart, not unwillingly. This is the marks of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So radical in this world. Nobody else functions like this. And when you do this for people, they are completely disarmed. Why would anyone live this way? Don't you care about your own self? How can you do this? Because I have another one who lives inside of me. A God who did this for me. You know, my friends, as we wrap this up, where is your heart at? You know, it's all good to have this stuff written down in the Scriptures. The question is, is this you? Are these words just an academic teaching from Jesus, or are they actually what you live by? And you live by it because you are so deeply aware that the Lord Jesus Christ treated you this way, and that's the reason why you're alive today and you have a hope in heaven that is waiting for you. You know what the problem is if you don't believe in Jesus here and that your life operates by the eye for an eye in the sense of like, you punch me, I will punch you back principle. Do you know what the problem is with revenge? The problem is it will destroy you. You think that it will make you happy, but it will destroy your life. Martin Luther King Jr., great civil rights activist, actually noted the problem if everybody lives with his teaching of an eye for an eye in that misunderstanding sense. He said, the old law of an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than to win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than to convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than on love. I think he's nailed it, actually. See, revenge will ultimately leave you blind, and it will leave you destroyed. And someone else said, you know what resentment is like? Resentment is like taking poison and then hoping somebody else dies from it. That's exactly what it does to your soul. The longer you leave it to sit there, you're actually poisoning your body. Now, perhaps you're struggling right now because, yeah, maybe you've been grievously wronged by someone in the past, and you're actually trapped by your desire for revenge. What should you do? And the answer that the Bible has for you here is that you actually need the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, if you're enraged because your dignity has been insulted, you have been mistreated by somebody else, look to your Lord. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was himself mocked, spat on, he was crucified, led away by people who plucked out his beard and struck him in the face. And yet, on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And as Jesus went to the cross there, as he did not retaliate on the cross and make an end to all of his enemies, that's the reason why you and I are saved. Because Jesus did not repay in kind, but died for our sins, and willingly so, you and I have freedom today to become blood-bought children of the living God. Because Jesus did not respond in kind, we have life. See, if you are concerned that people have take, been taking advantage of you, Think about Jesus himself. He was taken advantage of. He was despised by his enemies. And yet it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame, he endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. See, because Jesus looked at the joy set before him and walked 
So my question for you is, do you have crosses that have been put on your back that you must pick up daily by people who don't even like you? And will you, by focusing on heaven and looking at what your Lord has done and His example, consider it a privilege to be able to imitate Him in the way that you repay evil with kindness instead and follow in your Master's footsteps? Can you feel His pleasure over your soul? What if your family was murdered and your heart screams for revenge, right? What about something horrid like that? You know, Michael Marcus Doe is a Liberian refugee who came to America after his mom died and his father was basically murdered by a man named General X, a soldier. For 18 years, Marcus writes about how he had one goal in life, and that was to get revenge. He said it was so vivid in his mind, this goal, and that was to go find General X. And he would sit there, he says, at his home as a young man, looking at an empty chair, and he would imagine General X sitting there, tied up to that chair. And he said he would sit there imagining that he would have a machete in one hand and that he would bring the machete to him slowly and watch the terror in his eyes and imagine driving that machete right into his ribs. And then he says with his other hand, he would pull a pistol from his belt and he would put it right up against his head and put a bullet into his brain. He replayed this scene, he says, over and over again. And it was so vivid and so real for him. He says that there were times that he would feel after he was done with his imagination sessions, his muscles completely tight from the fact that he was actually screaming out loud and that he would be completely parched because his lips were so dry from the spit that had been running down to it. This wasn't just in his imagination. He felt the reality of it as he looked at this kitchen chair day after day, year after year, plotting his revenge. But... Marcus Doe testifies that his whole life changed one day when he read these words of Jesus. If you forgive other people their sin, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And as he realized the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers, he said after 18 years of carefully plotting his revenge, he found sweet freedom and release through the cross of Jesus Christ, and he was able to bury his hatred. Marcus said that he planned a trip, and he actually returned to Liberia to find General X, but instead of this time wanting to put a bullet in his head, he said he decided that he would go to Liberia to find General X and to offer him his forgiveness and the hope of Jesus Christ. He discovered when he arrived there that General X had actually already been dead for 14 years and that he had been chasing a phantom all of his life. But he talks about how he went into a barber shop and was being shaved actually by another man that he realized was one of the types of people, a child soldier basically, who had been one of the people who had been trying to kill him and his family back in the day. And as he looked at this child soldier grown up, he realized, oh my goodness, this person is just like me. He's just like me. And he said, and he felt compassion in his soul for him. And all he wanted, he realized, was for these people to know the freedom and the hope that he had in the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. Jesus had completely changed Marcus. And now he saw his once former enemies who had brutally murdered his family members and treated his countrymen so horrifically. He saw them as fellow sinners and enemies of God who needed repentance as well. And his heart broke with compassion. See, friends, do you want to be free from the prison of revenge in your soul? Two things. One, you need to realize that deep down inside that you are a sinner and that you as a recipient of God's mercy have received an unimaginably gracious gift. 
And if you really believe that deep down inside in your heart, it will be very difficult for you to look at anybody else, even if they have wronged you, and not see them with compassion as well. If God forgave you, can you not forgive the littler things that other people have done to you? And the second thing is this. You can forgive and get beyond revenge because if there really is a God who is for you and sees all things and knows all things, even if you do not get justice in this life, justice will be served one day. You can be assured of that on that final day when God judges the secrets of every person's heart and calls all deeds into account. Nobody will escape the justice of God. So friends, rest assured that by you not choosing to seek revenge, you are not giving up on justice, but rather you are entrusting justice to a completely fair, a great, all-knowing, completely just God who will make all things right in one day. My question to you is, do you believe that? And if you believe that, can you actually let it go? Do you want freedom today? Do you want freedom from the burdens that you've been carrying? There is one solution, and that is to turn to Jesus Christ and find the forgiveness that is found only in Him and free yourself from your prison. You know, brothers and sisters, if you are struggling with this as well, God calls us actually to be servants of mercy who bring about redemption and kindness in a world that is full of revenge. And my hope for us is that God would help us to do this as a church by His grace and His power so that the world might find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your grace and your mercy. And how you go on, don't treat us as our sins deserve, but give us a hope of the eternal life. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to be servants of our true King, who will go about repaying evil with kindness, oh God, and leading people, God, to a knowledge of our living Savior. Father, I pray that you would help us deal with the roots of bitterness and revenge in our own souls and to see them for what they actually are. God, help us not to be a vengeful people, but a people who understand mercy and therefore become dispensers of mercy to a world that desperately needs the mercy of God. Father, I pray, oh God, that you would help us. Give us humility, love, and kindness that we might give to a world that is dying. Father, would you help us to forgive as we have been forgiven Help us to give with generosity because of the generosity that has been given to us. Help us to live as true children of the great King and as the people of our God. Help us to find forgiveness and to bring about redemption and to stop the cycle of revenge. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.